Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. This happens to be show number 26. And before we started to record today, I did a little bit of math. And after today's show, we will have a total of six shows left. We'll have a total, if all my math works out, to a total of 32. Uh, what we're going to be doing today is talking about something called qualifying the borrower to get a loan for a piece of real estate or, a piece, uh, or property. We've talked about or alluded to the, a lot of the information that's going to be contained in this chapter, and we're going to be discussing this time and the next time about qualifying the borrower. The only thing that we're going to be doing is getting a lot more detailed and trying to define or explain what the various terms realistically mean. And why that's going to be important is that remember that your responsibility as either a real estate agent who's trying to help somebody purchase a piece of property, such as a home or even an investment piece of property, or if you happen to be a mortgage lender, either mortgage, you know, working for a company, a bank, or a, a, a savings institution, or in some cases maybe a mortgage banker or a broker, your job is going to be sitting there with the client and helping them uh, gather all the necessary documents and helping them prepare for uh, uh, to prepare themselves and get ready for actually obtaining the loan. In other words, collecting all the necessary information and documentation to justify that they're qualified for the loan. So what we're going to be doing here is, usual, I'm going to be moving back and forth between my old friendly plasma screen and the document camera explaining this. And again, I'm going to be defining some of these terms. Uh, what's really important is that we really do have a very good handle on this. Remember, financing or getting the borrower qualified prior to spending a lot of time showing them a lot of property is very, very important. In fact, we had uh, uh, Lee Rutledge in yesterday, who's the uh, president, current president of Sacramento Association of Realtors, and, and she was mentioning that one of the most critical parts of uh, working with a client is making sure that they are qualified for the property that you are showing them because you're really wasting your time and their time if you don't have this taken care of. So, again, we're going to be talking about what this process happens to be. So I'm going to move over here now to uh, my old friendly document camera and read a little bit about what uh, the book has to say. Uh, it says here, before agreeing to make a real estate loan, a lender will evaluate both the borrower's ability and willingness. And notice that they, they break this down, ability and willingness. So we'll talk about that in a little bit, a little bit more detail. We've heard that before, but ability, ability and willingness to repay the loan and whether or not the property is of sufficient value to serve as collateral for the loan. This evaluation process is called loan underwriting, which is a career that you as uh, students may very well end up going into. You know, you, you have a career in real estate without having to sell houses. Uh, the individual who conducts the process is called an underwriter. Okay? So one of the things that I really want to stress here is this fact, and that is, is the way they break this out. We are looking at if the people, what their ability is for them to pay the loan, meaning do they earn a sufficient amount of money to make those monthly payments, and then a willingness. And a willingness is, you know, the ability is going to be used by looking at, you know, their income statements, their uh, their income tax statements, their pay stubs, their, you know, all that kind of stuff. The other one, which is willingness, is going to be gauged by their credit score. 
So consequently, uh, a client that pays their bills on time, doesn't have a lot of excess credit, so on and so forth, usually has a fairly high credit score. So that's going to show that they're willing and they can manage their their finances and their resources in order to, uh, you know, on a monthly basis, so they're a good candidate, and we believe that that's a good indicator that they will take and pay their loan back. The second part of that is, is where we're talking about that we're going to look at the property as collateral, and what that means is an appraisal. Because remember, I've said this so many times, I think I sound like a broken record, but lenders do not want to be in a position to take your property back. They absolutely, positively have no interest in doing that. The last thing they really want to do is foreclose on the property. I've mentioned this many times. If you go down to a bank or a savings uh, institution or a mortgage bank or a broker and ask them, can you show me where the uh, pool maintenance department is or the, uh, the landscaping department is, they're going to tell you we don't have any of those. They, in other words, they don't want to take those houses back and maintain them or take and fix them up and try to resell them again. They're losing money. So they really want to make sure that the pro, that you, that's the key thing. They want to make sure that you, once you borrow the money, will pay on time. The last ditch effort that they have is the fact of trying to foreclose that property and take it back and resell it. That's the thing, the last thing on their list that they want to do. So you, you sort of want to keep that in mind, though. But they are interested that there's enough that the value of the property is there, and it can, if it has to be sold, it can be sold for enough to pay the loan back. Going on from there, it goes into a little bit more detail. It just says the degree of risk in any individual loan is determined by answering two fundamental questions. Number one, does the borrower's overall financial situation, which is comprised of their income, their assets and credit history indicate that he or she can reasonably be expected to make the proposed monthly loan payments in a timely manner. In other words, on time, not late. Okay. Number two, is there sufficient value in the property pledged so as collateral to assure the recovery of the loan in the event of default? That's the appraisal part. Okay. So anyway, moving on from there, I've mentioned many times, and usually near when you're getting near the end of a course, you know, you find yourself feeling sometimes as the instructor like you're sort of repeating yourself because you've mentioned some of these topics before. But one of the things that is important that we do is to reiterate the fact that you know we're you know that the industry as it has continued to mature has set standards so that we underwrite or use the same process in the loan when we're going through and, and approving a loan. So I, I thought it was important and why I'm highlighting this paragraph is I think it's important for us to understand this and to look at this in relation to um, you know the overall process. And it's always important to understand history because history, the whole idea is that history, if we've made a mistake in the past, we don't repeat it again. Okay, so we should be learning from our mistakes, and hopefully that's what Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and lenders are attempting to do. But it says, until 1980s, it was not uncommon for lenders to have their own individual underwriting guidelines. In other words, Wells Fargo would be different than Bank of America, would be different than a savings loan. They'd all have their own individual guidelines. Loans were quite often made from funds obtained from local deposits. The lending guidelines of many local institutions were often liberal. Uh, the lenders made their own rules because it was their money. Any loan that did not meet the requirements of the secondary market was simply left in the lender's portfolio. Okay. So what does this mean so far? It means that 
First of all, if you go back and you take a look at the savings loan industry, the reason why their primary source of business, and we've discussed this before, was because they paid a higher rate of return. And because they paid a higher rate of return and because of the regulation of the different parts of the financial industry, they were sort of protected in the area that they could make home loans, that there really wasn't the competition that we saw or we see today where everybody, you know, everybody can make loans practically. You know, it's almost like the, uh, like the plasma TV sets now. You're finding out that you can not only buy them in Fry's and in Walmart, but you can go out and buy them in Home Depot and you can buy them in, uh, in, in the grocery store, for goodness sakes. You know, so, I mean, everybody's pretty much getting into the business. Well, with lending, that same sort of situation has happened. Everybody, including online banks, um, mortgage bankers, mortgage brokers, everybody's getting into the business. So there's much more competition, but there wasn't then. Okay. So going on from there, it says the lending guidelines of many local institutions were awful liberal. The lenders made their own rules because it was their money. Any loan that did not meet the requirements for the secondary market was simply kept in the portfolio, meaning if they didn't do the underwriting requirements to meet whatever Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac wanted, they'd say, uh-oh, well, you know, we'll just hold on to that loan. We forgot to, got, we forgot to get whatever the Fannie Mae wanted from the borrower. Okay, so we'll just hold on to the loan. Okay. However, in the 1980s, lenders experienced a massive, and I underline massive, loss of deposits and depositors who were attracted to other higher-paying investments. And if you lived during that period of time, by the way, I can remember during that period of time, you could even go to Sears and Roebuck, or Sears. I, think, I don't know what they called Sears and Roebuck now, but they called Sears. And you could go there and get a home loan. You could invest in the stock market. They had a financial... Uh, a financial office in there where you could go ahead and, and, and get real estate loans, sell real estate property, invest in the stock market. I mean, the whole industry was more or less deregulated, and everybody got into it. I remember in the uh, area of the credit union, you could go into the credit union, and they'd say, oh, by the way, do you, want to have a do you want to have a financial planner? They started having financial planners there. So the whole industry became deregulated. Um, going on from there, so anyway, because of this deregulation and because everybody can compete, now all of a sudden everybody's moving their money away from these, these institutions uh, who, uh, who went to higher-paying investments. This situation is called disintermediation, okay? Fancy term meaning that, that people are taking money out of the bank, okay? Or taking money out of your institution is what that means. To continue to make loans, the lenders who did not fail during this period were required to sell their loans into the secondary market. This meant that they had to play by the rules of the secondary market. Going on from there, it says, most lenders now underwrite to the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, conven uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac conventional underwriting standards, which for all practical purposes are nearly the same. So consequently, what's ended up happening is the bank said, wait a minute. You know, the money comes, you know, what's ended up happening is we used to have people come in, especially savings and loan, and put their money in for long-term deposits. And we've talked about this before. You know, on one extreme, you know, you have banks that turn around where you deposit your money today, and the next thing you know, tomorrow you're writing a checkout for the PG&E bill or the SMUD bill or, or the car payment. Okay, but we're talking about the savings and loans. People put their money in and left it in there for a long period of time. So, therefore, lenders or, or um, the, the savings and loans could take and make long-term commitments.
Okay? The minute there was a deregulation, people pulled their money out of the market or pulled their money out of those savings and loans, started to go to things like money markets, other kinds of financial investments, which now all of a sudden those savings and loans didn't have the money anymore. So now they said, well, wait a minute, we want to stay in the lending business, but how do we do this? Well, in order for us to compete, what we need to do is start following those guidelines by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. We need to make sure every single solitary loan that we process meets those guidelines so that, in, so that what we can do is turn around and sell that loan on the secondary market, get some money back, hopefully make a profit, and relend the money out again. So what they've done is they've turned into more of a loan originator rather than somebody that holds on to loans. So that's the point that we're talking about. Very, very important that we understand that. Now, what I want to do is that there's a lot of definitions that are in the book that I want to go through that are going to take some time. But I wanted to show you a form here that I'm going to kind of blow up. This is something that they have in the book. It's called a Uniform Underwriting and Transmittal Summary. The purpose of this form, this is something that's done by the underwriter. And there's a bunch of different things that, that the underwriter has to respond to. So what we're going to do is spend some time defining what these happen to be. In other words, we're going to spend some time defining what we mean by income what we mean by expenses, what we mean by income ratios or housing expense ratios. So we're going to spend some time, and then what we'll do is we'll come back to the form and go back through this again. So in order to do this, the first thing that we want to do is talk about what income is. Okay, And this becomes very, very important because what you're going to find out is, is that you may have income from several different sources. Okay. And so the lender is going to be asking you for justification of where that income is coming from. So that's why we're going to be talking about that first. So it comes down here and defines this. It says conventional lenders consider the borrower's income adequate for a loan if the proposed payment of the principal and interest, taxes, and insurance does not exceed 28% of his or her stable monthly income. Now, a couple key words in there. We're looking at the fact that we're going to look at the total. This is going to be the bottom figure, by the way. There's two figures we're going to be calculated. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the payment that this borrower is going to make on principal and interest, okay, taxes and insurance. What's that monthly payment going to be? And we're going to make sure that it doesn't exceed 28% of his or her stable monthly income. Now, stable monthly income means that every single month, month after month after month, we're talking about that kind of income, very stable income, not that you won the lottery last month, okay? In other words, stable income every month. So we're usually looking at something like the money that you earn from your job, okay? Or if you own a business, the monthly income that you draw, the salary you draw from your business. That's what we're talking about, but it's stable. So what we want to do is define a little bit about what this stable is. And so um, I think we have, we want to define, first of all, what this percentage is. And we're going to give you an example. And you have to bear with me on this because this is not really that complicated. But what we're basically doing is explaining how this is taking, you know, how we calculate this. 
First of all, we say the stable monthly income is the borrower's gross, not net, but gross monthly income from a primary base employment and any secondary income that is considered reliable and likely to endure. And we're going to explain what those terms are later on. We will take a closer look at that later on. Example, we have a borrower who has a stable monthly income, gross income of $2,900 a month. Okay? We have a proposed mortgage payment that they're going to make. They've looked at a house and they say, you know what, when we take a look at that, and remember that, that, uh, that, uh, monthly payment is going to include the principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. Okay? Not just principal and interest. It's the whole thing. So when we add all those up, it comes out to be $700. If we do the math and take the $700 and divide it by the $2,900, it comes out by 20, it comes out to 0.24%. That essentially means that $700 represents 24% of the overall income that this individual makes. Okay, so this is a we're looking at that figure. Okay, and what we're doing is we're saying that we're saying that this is a figure that we are not going to exceed. So in other words, when they tell us the bottom figure is 24, 25, 26, 27, 28%, whatever that is, it's saying, you know what, if you go past that, if your house payment is more than that, we are not going to make the loan. So that's the one figure we look at. But notice that we're only looking at the house payment. We're not looking at any other expenses that the house has. We're not looking at, you know, uh, food, clothing, or anything else. We're just looking at principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. We're not looking at car payments or anything. So this is one of the figures that we look at, that bottom figure. Okay? Now, it goes on from there, and it says a second but equally important concern is that the total of the borrower's housing expenses, as explained above, plus any installment debts, with more than 10% remaining payments, meaning that, you know, your car is going to get paid off. If it's going to get paid off, is it, is it going to be paid off in a year or two years? Or is it going to be paid off in the next couple months is what we're talking about. But anyway, a second but equally important concern is that the total of the borrower's housing expenses plus any installment debts with more than 10 months remaining as well as alimony, child support, or maintenance payments, if any, not exceed 30 36% of his or her stable monthly income, okay? So because of the fact that we're adding in some factors, we're adding in some additional expenses that one has, what we need to do is we're, we're going to have a higher rate. Notice that we're you're including more expenses. So in this particular case, we're saying the person's stable income is $29,000. Their proposed mortgage payment is $700, which includes principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. They have an auto payment with 18 installments remaining, 18 months, so we have to include that, which happens to be $225 a month. And then they have child support. So this person, it could be a man or a woman, is paying the probably the other spouse or the other person, the mom or the dad, they're paying $100 a month in child support for a total of $1,025. What we do then is we take that and we divide that by the 2900 and it shows that 35% of the income, or you have 35% of your income is going out to a normal monthly reoccurring expense, okay? So what it's saying here is that $1,025 represents 35% of the $2,900 a month, okay? So we're looking at two levels. We're looking at a bottom level and a top level.
So you look at one as a qualifier, and then you look at the other one. For example, I may have somebody that's maybe going to have a house payment that maybe only is going to be, you know, the principal interest taxes and insurance is only going to be, say, maybe 24 25% of their income. But when I start kicking in the other expenses that they have, like maybe they have a fairly large alimony payment or child support payments, or maybe they've gone out and bought a, a recreational vehicle, an RV vehicle, and they're spending, you know, another three or $400 a month in, uh, in uh, payments on that or a car, then I have to consider that. Because if they have that requirement, if they're having to pay that on a monthly basis, then that's money that's not going to be available, you know, to make the house payment. So that's why I have to consider both of those, okay? So anyway, this gives you a breakdown on how they do that, okay? This is called, by the way, for definition purposes, this is the total expense, total expense to income ratio called the total debt service, okay? It's another term. Frequently is more realistic measure of the borrower's ability to support the loan payments because it takes into account the borrower's other reoccurring financial obligations. Reoccurring means over and over and over every month. Okay. Notice that it doesn't include food. It doesn't include clothing. It doesn't have electricity bills. It doesn't have a lot of other things. So the fact is, is that anything that's above that 35%, the remaining part of that money, you're going to have to pay. You're using that to do things such as provide food, clothing, uh, you know, pay your telephone bill, your electricity bill, all that other stuff has got to be covered by that amount of money. That's why whenever anybody gets a loan, especially if you're getting a first-time loan and you're getting some assistance from somebody like the Home Loan Counseling Center that we've talked about before, that they'll sit down with people and they'll say, listen, we need to look at your budget. We need to make sure that you understand that you don't want to obligate yourself to something that all of a sudden you're going to realize after you're into it for a few months that you can't make the monthly payments anymore because it doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do the lender any good. It doesn't do your family any good. And uh, you may, as a result of that, get all done with your calculations and say, you know what, maybe it's better off that I continue to rent for a while until I get more. I start earning more income from my job. Okay. So anyway, going on from there, um, okay, so they give you another uh, example here, and they do it sort of like in a reverse way. Uh, let me see if I can go through what this example is. Okay, It says, example, Mary Smith has a stable monthly income of $3,200 a month. She has three... Uh, she has three long-term monthly debt obligations, a $220 car payment, a $75 personal loan payment, and a $50 revolving charge card payment. With what is the maximum monthly mortgage payment she can qualify for? So this is what your lender, you know, is hopefully, you know, a, an example of what they're doing. The, the person's putting out what their expenses are, and the lender is trying to help pre-qualify an individual. So they're saying, okay, what's going to happen is, is that she makes $3,200 a month. The income ratio that she has to meet, the bottom ratio, okay, meaning that her taxes, her principal interest taxes and insurance cannot exceed that 28%. So the maximum she can make based on that as far as a house payment goes is $896 a month. That's what she can make. As a house payment. If her house payment happens to be $900, $1,000, $11, $1,200 a month, she can't qualify to buy the house based on that income ratio. Period. Okay? Um, so that's one of the indicators you're looking at. 
The second indicator that you're looking at here is that you've sat down with your client or, or you know, the lender has, and has taken a look at the second thing. It says, okay, here we have a total debt service can't exceed 36%. So, again, she makes $3,200 a month. The income ratio, she can't exceed the 0.36% of her income, okay? The maximum total debt service that she can have is $1,152 a month, okay, total maximum. So what I do is I take that total maximum and I take away the car, I take away the personal loan, and I take away the revolving account. And this shows underneath this circumstance, because she has these additional payments to make, she cannot have a home payment that's going to exceed $807 a month. So if you take a look at this, we've got two figures. The first figure starts out where she has, where we're look, not looking at the other expenses, okay, which is $896 a month, which is almost $900 a month. But because of these additional expenses, she now shows that she can't get a loan on the house that he, where the payments exceed $807 a month. This happens to be a place, for example, where maybe a lender may talk about, hey, you know what, you know, when you take a look at this individual, what could they do to improve their situation? Well, a couple, one of the things that they could do is maybe they could pay off some of these payments, okay, or they could do something to reduce these car payments, okay, something along that line. Or maybe they, maybe you have to look at the fact that the only other thing they can do is get a, uh, you know, earn more income, okay. So the idea, though, is you know how the ratios are calculated. Beyond that, it says the maximum monthly uh, mortgage payment Mary would qualify for would be $807, okay? I think that's a pretty clear-cut example of how that would work. Now, they go on from there, and they give you a little chart, and they show you the ratios that, for example, that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac may have, okay? These are the ratios. In other words, these are part of the underwriter's guidelines, you know, if you're an underwriter, you're sitting there looking at these loan documents and looking at these applications all day long. And what you do is you have this policy manual sitting next to you or a checklist and says, look at the form and check this, check that. And once you've verified and included all of that, that you're actually doing that underwriting process. You're looking at and making sure all that information is there and whether they qualify or not. And you're following those guidelines, which is like a policy manual. But what they've done here is they've given you their ratios. They're saying, here's your loan-to-value ratio. Remember, loan-to-value means how much you're borrowing and how much you're putting down. So in this particular case, they're showing you here you have a 90% or less um, uh, loan, okay, and you have a down payment of 10% of more. So what they're saying is, you know what, this would be like, for example, you could maybe have 90%, okay, you could have 80%, uh, 80% that you're financing with 20% down, 85% you're financing with 15% down. That's what we're talking about here. But our limitation happens to be no more than 90%. Uh, what it's showing here is that your housing expenses on the bottom here cannot exceed 28%. Okay. Over here, it says the total debt that you can have is 36%. Now, this will all make sense in a minute. It says the, now, going down here, it says the Fannie Mae, more than 90% no down payment, okay, which you're going to put like 95 with maybe a 5% down payment. Your limit is 25%, and your total debt is uh, 33%. You may say, well, why is that? Why are the percentages different? 
The reason why is because in this particular case here, you're putting more money down. Okay, you are putting more money down. Here you're putting less money down. So what they're doing is saying, if you're putting more money down, we're going to allow you to have a little bit higher of a house payment because you have more of a buy-in. There's more of you, you're, you're putting, you as an individual are putting more on the line when you get ready to buy the property. Here you're putting down less. So if you're putting down less, then we're going to reduce the amount of house payment that you could potentially get because there's, you have less at risk. The same thing with the overall debt ratios. You know, if you're going to put more down, you're going to have a higher allowance. If you're going to put less down, you're going to have a lower allowance. That's the concept behind it. Okay? Very, very important to, to get that and make sure you understand that that's how the guidelines basically work. Now, when you're going out and you're working with a buyer, and, you know, most of the uh, really good real estate agents and the lenders will tell you that one of the things that you want to do is get make sure you get the buyer qualified before you spend all your time taking them around and showing them a bunch of properties. Um, that, this is part of that of getting them ready. This is part of the guidance. This is part of the information that they're collecting so that you can uh, you can help them so that they're qualified to buy the property. And as we said before, if you get them so that they are fully qualified for the property, it does two things. Number one, it helps you because you know exactly what they can afford. So you're not showing them houses. If they can only afford a $300,000 house, you're not showing them a $400,000 house. The second thing is that when you get ready to make an offer on a property, especially in today's market, if you're able to go in with your offer and on top of that give a letter from the lender saying that these people are fully qualified for a loan, we've been through the underwriting process, then that is a very strong offer. The chances of an owner choosing between that offer and one where the buyer is going to try to get qualified, they probably would take the where they have a, a bird in hand rather than two in the bush. In other words, they would go for the one that they know is for sure. So you're in a much better, stronger negotiating position, if you will. Now, the next thing we need to do is have an understanding of what we mean by this stable monthly income, okay? And every single individual is different. <clears throat> you know, I mean, some of us just get our income from working. Some of us have income from a lot of other sources. So in this case, it says we want to define what this is, stable monthly income. Stable monthly income is, is the base income of the bar, both the husband and the wife, plus earnings from acceptable secondary sources. Now what we want to do is to find out what that is. Secondary earnings take the form of, but are not limited to, bonuses, commissions, over and above base salary, part-time employment, Social Security payments, military disability and retirement payments, interest on savings and other investments, and the like. Okay, so we're looking at... The primary would be your job. The secondary would be like, oh, by the way, I also earn commissions on the job. I sell cars for uh, Folsom Ford, and uh, what happens is this is my base salary, and I consistently produce and sell. Um, I sell uh, cars, and I make this much money in commission. Uh, we could be also talking about where somebody is working, maybe they're a registered nurse, and they say, I work for Kaiser Hospital. My salary is $70,000 a year, but I consistently, every single year, make an additional $30,000 on overtime. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. We're looking at very stable resources. Or we look at the fact that, hey, you know what? I teach college here. 
but I also receive a retirement from someplace. Okay, so that's what we're talking about on secondary sources. So going after that, it says, uh, down below here, it says, analyzing a borrower's income is a three-dimensional procedure. Before concluding there is a sufficient quality of income, the underwriter must decide what portion of the total verified earnings are acceptable as part of his or her stable monthly income. This is accomplished by studying the quality or, or dependability of the income sources and the durability, the probability that it's going to continue to go on forever and ever. Okay? So now we're going to break this down. First of all, quality. Quality means this. It says quality uh, secondary source income is, is one that is reasonably reliable, such as an established employer, a government agency, interest-yielding investments accounts, etc. So quality. In other words, good quality secondary source of income consistently comes in without any problem at all over and over and over again. Okay, Not like uh, I earned some extra money uh, working the polls, uh, the vote, uh, you know, the voting boost this past uh, November, okay, or that I happen to be a lifeguard during the summer or something. We're talking about something that's very stable. Second thing is durability. Durability, uh, durable income is that income which can be expected to continue for a sustained period. Okay? For example, you may have earned uh, overtime working uh, for some company. Uh, for example, maybe you, have work, maybe you work for Home Depot or Depot, depending upon how you want to pronounce it. And maybe three, for three months, month after month after month, maybe you have earned income because maybe they needed to change out the inventory. They couldn't hire enough people. They had to get it done on schedule, so they had you work overtime. But once that project is done, you're not going to be offered overtime anymore. Okay. In fact, it may even be a company policy that doesn't offer overtime. It's just one of those unique situations. So they're not going to take a look at that three months and say, you know what, this person's going to earn that for the rest of their, you know, for the next few years. They're going to look at that as just being, happen to be a unique situation where you could possibly use those short-term income streams that you receive. Like, for example, if you work for a company that maybe is uh, providing overtime or bonuses, you may look at that as accumulating some money. So that what it can do is help you put more of a down payment down, okay, or help pay points. But they're not going to use it as your ordinary income that you're using to pay your monthly payments with, okay? They go on from there and they talk about things such as bonuses, commissions, and part-time earnings. These sources are considered durable if they can be shown to have been consistent part of the borrower's overall earnings pattern for at least one, but per preferably two years, uh, proof of such uh, consistency can be obtained by submitting copies of the borrower's W-2 forms or federal income tax statements for, from the previous year or a verification of employment and earnings from the employer. Okay? Consistent. There are professions, like I've mentioned before, you know, like a car salesperson, that's how they earn their commission. An insurance salesperson, that's how they earn their commission. Uh, if you're talking about some professions such as nursing, a lot of those people work overtime on a consistent basis, week after week after week after week. So, And they can justify that with pay stubs, with income tax statements, or whatever. So you could consider that. Uh, again, overtime, we've talked about overtime. You can include overtime if it happens to be stable and it continues to go on and on. Okay. 
Some of the things that you maybe, uh, you, uh, some other kinds of sources of income that you would look at would be things like unemployment and welfare. These earnings are almost never treated as stable income because they are viewed as temporary. So in other words, when you're on unemployment, even if you're on it for a few months, the hope is, is that you're not going to have it after a period of time. Remember, with unemployment, or welfare in that case, but let's say unemployment, you're going to be unemployed for maybe two, three months. The whole idea is that you're either going to get a job or you're going to run out of unemployment. Same thing with welfare. I believe with welfare now, you go on to welfare, and there's a period of time which you're given to maybe get a job or do something else, but after a certain period of time, that's going to run out. So that's why they call those temporary. They're not permanent. Going on from there, there happens to be some other uh, types of support that you may very well receive. One of them, or some of them, happen to be things like alimony, child support, or maintenance. And, it goes, and basically, what alimony is, is uh, alimony is something that's typically paid to the other spouse. So, for example, if you have a husband and wife that have been married for a number of years, they happen to get a divorce you may find out that either the wife has to pay the husband alimony or the husband has to pay the wife alimony, one or the other. That happens to be part of the divorce decree. In other words, when the divorce has been finalized, there's a document that says this is what we're going to do. This is how much money you're going to pay me on a regular basis. Okay. Child support, on the other hand, is something that's going to go for a period of years and then eventually it's going to stop. So, for example, if the child happens to be, say, five years old, you may find out that you're going to get child support all the way until they reach 18. At the age of 18, what's going to happen is the child support stops. The idea is the child now can go to school, go get a job, do something else. Okay, but they more or less, based on the agreement, have relieved whoever the parent is that's paying that from continuing to pay that. And I think here in this chapter it starts talking about the fact that the closer you happen to be to that age of 18, or that your children have to. Uh, in other words, like, if you if your child is five or six years old and you're receiving child support, that's probably going to be something you can use to help justify why you're getting a higher house, you know, to help you with qualifying for the house payment because there's an expectation that's going to last for a much longer period of time. If they're five years old, five or six years old, it's going to go on for a, a number of years. On the other hand, if the child happens to be 16 or 17 years old, that's going to run out fairly quickly. So if you're going to use that three or four or five hundred dollars a month in child support as justification to pay that house payment, they're going to say, "Wait a minute, you're going to run out of that in the next couple of years." So uh, and you're not going to have that money anymore. And I don't think that it's you know what's going to end up happening. You will not maybe in some cases be able to make the monthly house payments. Now of course there could be a situation where maybe. At that time, and, and again, depending upon who's making the loan and what the requirements are, maybe they're going to take some other kind of, maybe there's something else happening in somebody's life and they're going to look at. Maybe that parent that's receiving that child care is at the same time going to college and they're taking courses in an area where once they graduate, they will be able to get a very good, stable job. For example, maybe the, the parent that's receiving it might be uh, going to nursing school. And as soon as they graduate from nursing school, they know that they're going to be able to get a job and continue on working. So that would be something else that would come in. That's why in the book they say, you know, this underwriting process is not necessarily a science. It's more of an art. In other words, we're not just looking at a yes or no thing. We're taking a lot of other things into consideration and maybe asking for different types of letters or justification to help, help in qualifying for that loan. Okay.
A couple other things that they mention in here that I think is uh, important. Some other kinds of income you may have is income from other family members. This is interesting. Um, It says, generally, only the earnings of heads of household will be considered when calculating stable monthly income. Support from teenage children or other family members could stop without notice. Income of this sort lacks both quality and durability. Um, you know, when I was a child and I was being raised, I don't know, for whatever reason, my, my, mother, my parents, my father, once we got to a certain age and started to work, we paid room and board. There was an expectation <laughs> that we paid room and board. If we didn't pay it on time, my father, <laughs> I, I think my father would have charged interest. Uh, it's kind of funny that many families will have where they're making it because the kids are working a part-time job after school. And that could be a substantial amount of money that they're earning. But what they're saying here is even so, your son or your daughter may be making money and may be helping the family get by or, or make, make the monthly, you know, uh, keep the family afloat. That is something that may not be considered as part of the income coming into the family. And it's kind of funny because I know when I first went to work, my father nailed me for room and board. And by goodness, right after my brothers went to work, they got nailed for it too. And so uh, you can find out that, uh, and I don't know why in our family, because I've talked to a lot of other students that go to college here, and the, their parents don't do that. But there was an expectation, or there, I guess it depends upon where you're from. There's an expectation in certain families that you do that as part of, it's just required. Um, going on from there, so in other words, that would not, if you said, you know, junior works and makes a lot of money, that very well may not qualify, okay? Um Self-employment income. This is another area where it can be difficult. Now, who who would be self-employed? Some of the people that would be self-employed could be people that, for example, uh, I'll give you a couple different services. For example, if you get when you go to get your hair cut and you go to the barber or you go to the be- uh, the beauty shop to get your hair done, that person there that's working is probably renting a what they call a station or a chair. They're actually probably paying a certain amount of money per month to the owner of the salon to come with the privilege of working there. And they may actually be paying any three, four, five, six, seven hundred dollars a month for to have that chair and the ability to get to the, you know use the sink and do hair and all that other stuff. That person is earned that person is self employed. They're making their money based on checks, you know, in other words, checks for cutting hair, dyeing hair, whatever it happens to be. So they're self-employed. Some of the other people that you may see that are self-employed would be people that are doing things such as um, people that are doing things like pool services, coming around your house and cleaning your pools, mowing your lawns, gardeners. uh, You know, those are people that we run into on a daily basis that are providing those services that are really what we call small businesses. You could have somebody that's a Mary Kay Cosmetics that makes a lot of money. That's self-employment. Okay. Um, you could also go to the next level where you may have a fairly large company where it's a business that you have. Maybe you, you, you're a roofer, you're a builder, you're a developer, but what it is is it's your own business. So because of that, you're probably going to have to, in many cases, come in with a lot more documentation for the loan, not just your statement. They're going to be looking for that. Now, that can get to be a little bit dicey, and the reason why is because sometimes people that are self-employed, 
may take, for example, where, you know, you write a check out to them or you give a charge card saying, okay, you know, thank you very much for cutting my hair. Here's the $40. And then they may also, you may be giving them a tip and you give them the tip in that cash in the form of cash. And that can be fairly substantial after a while, but that's something that they don't include in what we call when they pay their income taxes. It doesn't show up. So it becomes hard sometimes for them to justify that they do have that ability to make that higher house payment because they're only showing what they receive checks for. I'm just saying that there's some people that possibly may do that, okay? So it may be good at one time, but another time when they're trying to qualify for a house, it may be difficult, okay? Uh, so anyway, we go down self-employment income. It goes down from there and it says uh, the requirement of, for documentation of income may be waived in some cases. Now, what we're talking about is that we do have loans that are what we call stated income loans. In other words, for whatever reason where the borrower, the person that's getting ready to borrow the money has a substantial amount of assets or has a lot of money in the bank cash or puts a large down payment down or has a really good credit rating. And what they do is just state and say, I make $50,000 a year. And they say, yes, okay, we'll believe that because your credit rating is good, because you have a lot of assets or whatever, okay, stated income. It says, some lenders offer easy qualifier or no documentation loans for borrowers meeting certain requirements. A borrower with a sufficient assets, good credit, and who is able to make a large down payment, usually at 30% or more, may be able to obtain a loan without providing documentation of income and income tax returns for the preceding two years. Okay. Recently, though, I love this. Recently, though, these types of loans have suffered a high default rate and are currently in disfavor. What we're basically saying is, is that, you know, when we just take the word of somebody, Without the supporting documentation, we are taking a risk. On the other hand, when we have a fully documented loan, documented loan, we're saying we're saying to we're looking at things like pay stubs that are coming from a reputable company. We are looking at income tax statements that those people have been paying. We are looking at bank statements, you know, where the bank, Wells Fargo, is saying this is how much money these people have in the bank. This is how what their average balances are. You know, here's where they're, we're not charging them any late fees on their checks. Their checks, you know, I mean, all those things are included in those statements. So we have more confidence in the fact that these people were better able to judge whether they can make those payments or not. Now, another thing that you'll run into once in a while will be somebody called a co-mortgager. And uh, I'll read a little bit about this, but uh, I happened to be in that situation a number of years ago. I did this. A lot of parents do this. This is not an uncommon thing. But it says, uh, co-mortgages, frequently a co-mortgager is used to aid primary borrower in qualifying for a loan. Today, parents often lend their established credit pattern and financial status to their children who otherwise would be unable to purchase a home. Okay? So that means that your son or your daughter is going to buy a house, and you go along, and you go along as a co-mortgager. In other words, you're saying, hey, listen... If they don't make the payments, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Okay, that's what you're basically saying. It goes on from there, and it says, A co-mortgager is simply a co-borrower, an individual who, along with the primary borrower, accepts responsibility for repayment of the loan by signing a promissory note and mortgage. 
Like the primary borrower, the co-borrower must have earnings, assets, and a credit history that are acceptable to the underwriter. Okay. Now, it goes on from there, and I think this is kind of interesting. It says, keep in mind that a co-mortgager is, if a co-mortgager is used, he or she must be able to support both his or her own housing expense and the proportionate share, if not all, of the proposed housing expense that the child may have. So, in other words, when you're qualifying for the loan, you're looking at the fact, can you make your monthly house payment? Plus, on top of that, can you also make at least half or whatever percentage it is that you're guaranteeing of that loan for your son or your daughter? And people will many times do this. I have seen this, um, for example, when students are going to college. This is one of the things that many parents will do. They're going to send their child to a college. The child's going to be there for three, four, or five years. The child's either going to stay in a dormitory where they're going to have to pay some money or they're going to stay in an apartment where the ch parents are going to have to spend some money or the parents turn around and say, you know what, why don't we do this? Why don't we buy a condo, a townhouse, a small house, whatever it happens to be, for little Jimmy or a little Jane. They'll live there, okay? At least the money that I'm paying happens to be, you know, you know it's, they can possibly build equity. And in some cases, people have found if they've bought in the right location that at the end of the child's education, they may have accumulated enough in equity that would maybe help pay some of the cost for the child to go to school. So, and, and another thing that parents will do sometimes, it might be where they're trying to help the child develop that or get used to buying their first house and having that responsibility. So that's not a non-common practice to have happen. Uh, I helped my son do this, and then when my son sold his condo, the same thing, the person that was buying it was a young lady that was going to Sac State, and her parents, or I think it was her grandparents, helped her buy the place. So it's not a non-common practice. Some of the other kinds of income that we may be looking at are things like rental income. Rental income is income coming in from, from rental property. So it says income from rental properties can be counted as stable monthly income, if, stable, if a stable pattern of rental income can be verified, again, this happens to be where you are possibly showing in your bank statement that you are receiving rent checks on a monthly basis. You know, the rent is $1,000 a month, and every month I receive a check for $1,000 a month consistently. That's what we're talking about. That's how they would verify that. Authorized copies of the owner's books showing gross earnings and operating expenses for the previous two years should be submitted along with the borrower's application for loan approval. You probably would see that not necessarily in a single-family home, but if you're talking about this person having things like maybe a small apartment house, an office building, a shopping center, maybe a series of single-family homes or condominiums, they would have a set of books that would say unit A earns this amount of money, unit B this amount of money, this is how much I paid for a plumber, electrician, these are the utilities I paid, and you would submit that documentation showing that you received that on a monthly basis. Okay. Uh, after that, they go down here and they talk about verifying income. Uh, a couple things that they do mention is they say early in, in, in early 1987, lenders were required to verify income by sending an income verification form directly to the applicant's employer. Okay, in other words, if you work for the federal government, it went to the personnel department. You work for the state, it went to the personnel department. Okay, uh, the employer filled out the form and then sent it directly back to the lender. 
the borrower was not allowed to have any contact with the verification forms, meaning the fact that they couldn't have maybe changed, you know, the one to a four or some other number, okay? Uh, however, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have changed income verification procedures and income may now be verified by the borrower. The borrower can uh, substantiate his or her own employment and income by providing W-2 forms for the previous two years and payroll stubs or vouchers for the previous 30-day period. And I will tell you that in most cases that I've ever had, including myself, when I get a loan, not only will the lender ask for that and receive it from me, but they'll also go back and check if that's still true, especially like uh, when I built a house a few years ago, I applied for and was approved for the loan, like I think it was in January or February, submitted all the documentation to the lender, was approved, got a lock on the rate, did all that. But guess what? When I was getting ready to close the house, they went back and verified all that information. They wanted me to prove that I was still working. They wanted my wife to prove that I was still working. So in other words, when we talk about fully documented, they'll go back and say, you know, has anything changed over those period of time from when we made our first decision to now? And they'll want proof, okay? But they're, they're not requiring a letter, and I can see the problem with the letter because anytime you have something that you're submitting to your employer, employers nowadays especially are a lot, pretty gun-shy of disclosing any information at all uh, about employees. That's why when you call, you know, like on a job reference, it used to be where you would call up the employer and the employer would say, yeah, don't hire Pat, he's a bad guy, he never shows up for work on time and he does lousy work. Okay, well, employers got sued over that stuff. So employers got very, very gun-shy and said, you know what, the only thing I'm going to do is I'm going to just say Pat works here. That's all I'm going to do. And plus, whenever you start having forms submitted, now the employer has to hire somebody to fill those forms out. And so you're putting a burden on the employer to do some additional work that they're not really funded for. So consequently, that's why, you know, it becomes more realistic to say, wait a minute, if the employer is already supplying documentation and they're doing that as part of their normal process, why don't we take that and not ask them to do this extra step because that's going to cost them money, okay? Also can slow down the loan because they can say, well, you know, whenever we get around to it, we'll fill out the form, okay? Um Okay, we're getting not too far from the end. A couple things we want to do. These, some of this is pretty common sense. They talk about computing uh, your monthly earnings. This happens to be if you happen to have a regular, normal 40-hour uh, job where you're not salaried, you earn uh, your income based on a, an hourly wage. So they're just giving you an example here. They're saying, for example, if you have an hourly wage of $20 an hour, blow this up, yeah, you can see that from here, $20 an hour, your weekly income is going to be 20 times the 40 hours, $800. Your annual income is going to be the 800, which is how much you earn per week times 52. This is considering the fact that you have a paid vacation, by the way, okay? Because the idea is that you may have a week off, but you're going to get paid for that. So that happens to be what your what your annual income is. This happens to be what your monthly income is. It's that simple. It's not any more complicated than that. Some of the other things they're going to be looking at is things like an employment history. And they talk about that in here. Um, employment history becomes very important. What they're really looking for is they can understand that you maybe have gone from one job to the other job because maybe you have finished some kind of an education program and now you're going to get a promotion or, you're, or 
maybe um, that education, whatever you've done, has prepared you for a different type of employment. You know, maybe you were a nurse. Maybe you worked your way through nursing school by, for example, working as a waitress in a restaurant. Now you've graduated and you're going to work in the hospital, and that has that education has prepared you, and that's something they can understand. Okay. What they have a difficult time with, though, is where all of a sudden you seem to job hop all the time. They take a look at it and they say, well, wait a minute, you work with Macy's, now you're working at Sears, then you worked at the donut shop, then you worked at the coffee shop, and you go on and on and on like that because they feel that that indicates that you have a difficult time holding on to stable employment. And there's a good possibility that you may not continue to work, and they're going to get stuck with the house. So they'll say, wait a minute, you know, we're not going to lend. That's more of a risk to us. So they're looking for stable types of employment. So that's why they say, and unless there's some reason, like you may have moved from one company to the other company, and that was at no choice of yours. It was because that company happened to shut down in Sacramento, and now you had to go to work for somebody else. Okay, we've had that happen where we've had military base closures. We've had uh, Hewitt Packard has moved out of town, by and large. There's been a lot of different companies that have moved out, and, and, and now you're working in a new place. So that could be the reason why. Okay. And that's why they say um, advancement, you know, if a borrower has changed employers for the sake of advancement within the same line of work, within the same line of work, the underwriter will likely view the change favorable. On the other hand, persistent job hopping without advancement usually signifies a problem of some kind, and the underwriter will tend to regard the individual's earnings as unstable. And I don't, I think we probably all look at the fact that uh, we know somebody that, uh, you know, that has, you know, every time we meet them or talk to them, we find out that they have another job. They're working someplace else. And there could be a lot of reasons why they're doing that. Okay, it could be their personality problem. They can't. They have a difficult time getting along at work, or they could have a, a substance abuse problem, or something like that. But they're by them changing constantly. There's something going on there. It's not, you know, you know, especially if they're not going up. They're just going from, you know, working in this restaurant to working in this restaurant to working in this restaurant. There's something going on there. Okay. Um, the, and we're pretty much near the end now. The next time that we meet, we're going to move on and talk about something called, you know, your your assets and your liabilities or figuring out what your net worth is. And this is going to become very important because the lender is going to be looking at when you fill it out, you know, uh, how much real estate do you own? What do you owe against it? What kind? Do you have a car? How much do you owe? We're going to be talking about net worth what your actual net worth is. Be looking at things like stocks, bonds, mutual funds. The other thing that's important, too, is we're going to look at the degree of how quickly we can convert those things into cash. Okay? So there's going to be a difference between whether it's in the bank and it's in checking account or if it happens to be real estate. Okay? Okay, so we're going to be looking at that. With that, I think we're pretty close to being done. And uh, what we'll do is we'll see you back here the next time for the next show. Have a nice day. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.